Awesome. Thank you, worship team. Thanks, Elise, for stepping up and taking the lead there. I really appreciate that. All right. Let's see here. I get myself in order. We're going to be in. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter three. So if you have your Bible, I hope you do. Open up to Romans chapter three. If you don't, there's some over here you can grab. Anybody need a Bible? Raise your hand. We can get one to you. Okay. All right. Well, today we're continuing our talk, Crosstalks. This is the fourth one, talking about redemption and justification. And so let's just review really quick the purpose of what we're doing here. We're talking about what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And because of that, how should we view God? How should we view ourselves? Um, How should we view sin because of what Jesus did on the cross? And so last week, we kind of went back to the very beginning. And we said, why do we have this image of the cross as kind of the image of Christianity? Why, when we wear a necklace and we're a Christian, or a rapper, one of the two, um, do we have a cross, (laughs) right? And the reason is because Jesus taught throughout his life that the cross was the central reason for why he came, right? We talked about how even just hours before he died at the Last Supper, he's telling his disciples um, that the mission's not done yet. It has to be accomplished at the cross. So the cross is central in Jesus's life. Therefore, it should be central in our life. Well, I wanted to begin today by asking the question, why is this important? Because I could imagine that some of us may be coming these mornings and these uh, evenings on Wednesday nights kind of wondering, what's the big deal? Why is this so important? Okay, so you might feel like, man, this sure feels like school. Kind of feels like a lesson that I would get in school where I have to memorize a big word and try to remember what it means and, you know, what does it matter anyways? Is this really going to have any impact on my life? Or you might think, Man, isn't this something that like pastors need to know, but the rest of us can kind of not have to worry about it? Why do I have to be here as a middle schooler or high schooler learning about this? Or you might think, doesn't this just kind of complicate Christianity? Isn't it just making it more difficult? Can't we just keep things simple? Can't we just say Jesus died, forgave our sins? Why do pastors always have to complicate everything? Why do they have to make it hard to understand? Okay, I don't know if that resonates with any of you guys. So I was thinking about how we answer that question with regard to the cross. Well, the cross, as we're going to see in this passage today, is a gift. It's one of the greatest gifts. It is the greatest gift. Um, And so I want you to think about receiving a really amazing gift. Think about someone calls your family, let's say, um, you know, you're at the mall. You're one of those people who, when you walk past the sign that says, win a trip to Disneyland for your whole family, You stop and you fill it out and you put it in the thing or win the car, you know, you fill it out even though you're 10 years old, I want to win the Audi, yes, I'm going to fill this out, you know, yes, I'm over 18, I lied, but if they, you know, send it to me, we'll figure it out later, all right? Um, So let's say they call your house and they say, you did it, you won, 
you won the trip to Disneyland or Disney World. And that'd be an awesome gift, right? But you'd probably want to know a little bit more, wouldn't you? You'd want to know some of the terms and the conditions and the, the details of what exactly you'd won. It'd be nice to know how many tickets you won, right? How many people can I bring with me? How many people can go, right? Is there enough tickets to bring my whole family or do I get to leave my little brother at home? Um, you might want to know, are you going to fly me there? I live in Chicago. It's in Florida or it's in California, whichever one you're going to, right? Are you going to get me there? Where am I going to stay when I get there? Are they putting you up like in the Disneyland hotel right there where you get to ride Mickey Mouse or whatever into the rides or however it works? Are they kind of putting you by the airport and you've got to rent a car and figure out how to get back and forth every day? Or do they not have anything provided for you and you have to figure out your own housing? Or what about food? Do I have to bring, you know, a couple hundred dollars to buy food for the whole week? Or are they going to provide that for me? Okay, so when we discuss the cross, when we discuss the gift of the cross, what we're discussing on days like this is we're discussing the terms and conditions of the gift. What exactly do we get when we get the cross? And we should really, really want to know what we get when we get the cross. Because here's why. You go back to Disneyland, okay? Let's say you don't know the terms and conditions. Hey, you want a trip to Disneyland? They hang up the phone, right? That's all you know. And you get three jobs all summer long, and you're just working your tail off. You're up at the crack of dawn. You, you work all the way until the sun, long after the sun goes down, because you're trying to raise money for plane tickets so that you can go to Disneyland, this trip that you won. And then you find out, actually, they were included the whole time. What a waste! You wasted your whole summer working yourself to the bone in order to buy plane tickets that you already had. Right? Or what if you spent the whole summer just like nervously, anxiously trying to figure out all the details, like where are we going to stay? How are we going to get to and from the park? How are we going to you know, get the food? I, I, I don't and then you find out when you get there, oh no, yeah, this is all provided. Why did you waste your whole summer worrying about this? The same thing goes for the cross and the gift of the cross, that we can actually live our lives with guilt or feeling like God is angry at us or the idea that, oh, I just have to do more stuff in order to get forgiven by God or get the benefits of the cross only to realize that it was all provided for you at the end of the day. What a wasted life to spend your life working and fighting for something that you already had. So the bottom line is that the, um, as sinners who are in desperate need of a savior, we're going to wrestle with many trials, many temptations, and many accusations in this life. But many of the things that trouble us the most have already been dealt with on the cross. And so we want to take the time to see how have they been dealt with so that we can live in light of the freedom and the terms and conditions that the cross provides us and not live a life that is harder in the sense um, because we aren't accepting the grace that God has given us on the cross. So let's do a quick look at the cross. Try my hand at art here. So we talked already, we've done this a couple times. 
we talked about how each one of us deserves to be on the cross. And because of our sin, we have incurred all sorts of problems, and ultimately we deserve the cross. Okay, so some of the problems are... We deserve God's wrath, right? That by sinning against a holy God, by disobeying His commands, by going astray from what He made us to do, it makes Him angry. It makes Him angry in a righteous way, though. Where God is not sinning in His anger, it's right for Him to be angry that He created us to live a perfect life and we have rejected His ways and Him to live our own way. We also, by sinning, oops, sorry, have made ourselves slaves to sin and to Satan. Scripture is very clear that those who sin are slaves to sin. That we're slaves to serving Satan and doing what he wants us to do. By sinning, we have also made ourselves guilty and condemned before a holy God, for a holy judge, that we are guilty before him, right? And he has the right to punish us, that we deserve a punishment. And finally, by sinning against God, we have separated ourselves from him. Okay, this is kind of like heaven, throne room, door, lock, I don't know. All right, that's what we got there. All right, so we have separated ourselves from God. So sin causes all sorts of problems, okay? And this actually isn't even all of them. This is just a good representation of some of them, okay? So sin causes all sorts of problems. And so what we said um, is the heart of the gospel, what we've already talked about. The central point of the gospel is this. Red markers don't work. Oh, Is that... At the heart of the gospel, Jesus has taken us off of the cross and he put himself on the cross, okay? And this is what we call substitution. Okay, so the heart of the gospel, the heart of the cross, to understand that we have to understand that Jesus took us off, okay? So here we are, we're going to move over here. This is you again. And Jesus is now on the cross. So Jesus is experiencing the wrath. He is dealing with the slavery. He's guilty and condemned. And he will be separated from God in our place, taking our place on the cross. So today we want to talk about redemption and justification. Specifically, we'll also hit propitiation again for those who weren't here. So look now at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and we're going to be in verses 21 to 26. All right, so here we go. But now the righteousness of God, by the way, before we get into this, this is thick stuff, so we're going to go through it a couple times, okay? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested or made known apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So let's talk about this one, okay? So we'll go bit by bit. So the first part of this passage is saying this. In Jesus, there is a new way to be made right with God. Okay, in Jesus, there's a new way to be right, made right with God. So what's the old way, we might say? The old way is the law, okay? And the law is this law that's given by God saying, here's all my commands, here's how you have to live. You can think about the Ten Commandments are part of the law. Don't murder, don't steal, check, check. Don't lie, can't check that one, right? Honor your mother and father, probably can't check that one. Right? Do all these things perfectly and you will be righteous before God. But this verse is saying the righteousness of God, the way to be made righteous before God has been manifested apart from the law. And this might also be referring to how God is righteous, but we'll talk about that later. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, God's law, it's not like two separate things. It's that God's laws actually point to this new thing. They're pointing you to the new way to be made righteous. So what's the new way to be made righteous? Well, the way is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the new way that God has made for us to be right before him, as opposed to guilty and condemned, is through faith in Jesus Christ for anyone who believes in Jesus. So there is a new way to be made right with God. The next part tells us that none of us can be right with God apart from this new way. There's no way to be right with God, whether it's by the law or some other religion or some other method. It says, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, so there's no way that you can be righteous apart from this new way. If we back up just a little bit in the chapter and you see verses 10 through 18, you'll hear this. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and the paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Pretty clear. All of these are actually quotations from the Old Testament. So when it says that the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, points to this new way, that's what it's saying here, that these all point to the fact that none of us can be righteous except by this new way in Jesus Christ. Okay, keep going. And it says, um, it should say something about it. Righteousness before God is a gift that we have to receive by faith. So it says we are all justified by his grace as a gift. So that's why we're talking about a gift today. This is a gift by God's grace that's given to us through redemption. That's what we're talking about today, justification, redemption, that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received 
by faith. We're going to talk more about this as we go. Okay, so righteousness before God is a gift we receive by faith. And finally, it was right for God to do it this way. Okay, at the end of this passage, it says this was to show God's righteousness. In other words, some people might say, well, gee, that really seems unfair. We all deserve to be on the cross and you just take your son and stick him up there. That doesn't seem fair. But we have to understand that God is perfectly just. He's a perfect judge. And so Paul's telling us that because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, so for thousands and thousands of years, God hadn't just struck every single person down when they sinned, which would have been fair because they were sinning against him and going against his ways. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, God is just by sending Jesus Christ, that this is the right way to deal with sin, but God is also the justifier because he's the one who's come up with the plan. It's his plan to justify us. Okay, so that's a lot of big words, all right? But let's go through and talk about three concepts. We're going to talk about justification, redemption, and propitiation, these blue words up here. And then that's all we're going to do, okay? So let's talk about justification first. Justification deals with this right here. This is what justification deals with. Okay? So when Jesus dies on the cross, he dies to justify us by taking away the guilt and condemnation that we deserve, okay? So instead of guilt and condemnation, we have now no condemnation, and no guilt. Because the guilt and condemnation that we deserve was paid for, okay? He paid the penalty for us on the cross. And so what justification is, is justification is a declaration. It's not something that happens slowly over time. It's a declaration. So you can picture someone in a courtroom. This is something that happens in a courtroom. And I don't know, have there been any really famous trials in your guys' lifetimes? Anyone famous been on trial? The thing that comes to mind for me is O.J. Simpson. Okay, O.J. Simpson was my lifetime. That was a big famous one, which I guess they just let him out, right? He's on back out there. Just amazing. Yeah, maybe he'll become governor. Oh, Rob Lugovich. He's a big one. Yeah, you're right. Um, so picture a courtroom, right? And what happens in the courtroom? You've got a judge sitting up front. You've got the accused person down below. And at the end of the day, the judge says, guilty or not guilty, right? That's a declaration. And when the judge says guilty or not guilty, he is declaring the state of this person. Now, because of Jesus' death on the cross, we sat in that seat condemned and guilty because we were sinners, because we'd broken God's law. But because of what Jesus has done for us, he's taken our punishment that we deserved, God looks at each person who follows Jesus Christ and he says, not guilty. He says, justified. You are declared just. But there's more to it than that. Because it's one thing for God just to say, well, I forgive your sins. But there's a total problem because you walk out the door 
and you're like, three minutes later, you sin again, and you're guilty again. So God doesn't just forgive you of your sins. God gives you Jesus' righteousness. It's called imputed righteousness in the theological terms. It means Jesus lived a perfect life so that his righteousness might be counted to you. You aren't perfectly righteous, right? You don't follow God's laws perfectly. But when God looks at you, he declares you righteous because he sees Jesus' perfect life. Well, how can that be fair? Well, it's only fair because your sin was imputed to Jesus on the cross. So all of your sin and all of your guilt went to Jesus on the cross and was paid for. And it would be unjust for God to say, no, 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 you still owe me for more sins when they've already been paid for, right? So justified means our sin has been paid for. God looks at us and says that we are righteous because we've been given Jesus's righteousness. It is something that is instantaneous. It is the first, one of the first things that happens when you say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I choose to follow you. In that exact moment, boom, your sin is gone. Jesus's righteousness is your righteousness. You are righteous before God. And it's on the grounds of Jesus's blood because of what Jesus has done for you. Now, there's some side note that I want to make here. It's really important for us to understand how this makes our church different than the Catholic Church. You guys have Catholic friends? A lot, there's actually quite a large Catholic community here, right? We have a lot of Catholic people who go to our schools and things like that. We live in a day and age where the only wrong thing you can say is that other people are wrong, right? That's kind of like the way that we live. Um, but this is a big difference between us and Catholics. We might say, well, come on, what's the big deal? We both worship Jesus. Can't we all just like get along and say we're all the same? No, we can't because of this. This is a really big deal. So how is it different? Well, the Catholic Church says that justification is not instantaneous. It doesn't happen the moment you believe. They say the Catholic, the Catholic Church says that justification is a process. That you are not counted righteous before God immediately when you follow Jesus. It's something that has to take place over time. Okay, and so I'll tell you what it says. This is from the Council of Trent. Um, and so some of the things that it says is that uh, faith is not the only way to be justified. It is the beginning of justification. So when you choose to follow Jesus, you've started the process of becoming just before God. The next step is genuine sorrow for all sin and resolving to begin a new life by receiving holy baptism and by observing the commandments of God. Now, already you should feel pretty hopeless. If your justification is based on your observance of God's commands, you should feel hopeless if you've believed in Jesus and haven't been baptized because in the Catholic Church, they'd say, nope, you're not there yet. But guess what? Baptism isn't the end of the road either. It says after you've been baptized, that brings you um, to a close of justification. You're justified before God. That is until you sin again which might be like two minutes after you're baptized. So the second you sin again, you're back to being not justified before God. So you're not justified, so what do you have to do now? Well, now you have to go to the priest, and you have to do the sacrament of penance. You must confess your sin and receive grace from the priest. 
Um, and just so you know, this is what it says. The grace conferred is a deliverance from the guilt of sin. And in the case of mortal sin, that means sin, and its eternal punishment, hence also reconciliation with God, justification. Finally, the confession is made not in the secrecy of the penitent's heart. So guess what? Asking God to forgive you by yourself in your room doesn't count. Okay? doesn't count. Um, it does not count if you go to a layman as a friend or an advocate nor to any representative of human authority. You can't go to anybody except a duly ordained priest with requisite jurisdiction and with the power of the keys, i.e. the power to forgive sins which Christ has given to his church. Until you go to the Catholic priest, you are damned. And if you sin again after that one, you got to go back. If you sin again after that one, you got to go back. This makes a huge difference in how we view the gospel and justification. This explicitly says, faith alone cannot justify a man. And we believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay? It says friendship with God is based on perfect love of God and good works or charity. So your friendship with God, your relationship with God is based on what you do each day and whether or not you perfectly love God and do good works. And we would say it is not. God has counted you righteous because of the cross and it doesn't depend on you at all. It depends on Jesus. So as you think about your Catholic friends, that's a big difference. I'm not saying down on Catholics, okay? I am saying know your theology. Know why our church is different than their church. Okay, so jumping into redemption. So justification is, takes, away, takes away the guilt and the condemnation. Now let's jump into redemption. Redemption is something that happens at a slave market. It's a word that talks about being bought back from captivity or slavery. A helpful image is at the middle of Exodus, right after the uh, Israelites have been led out of Egypt. How were the Israelites treated in Egypt? What were they? They were slaves, right? Slaves being used to build whatever the pharaohs wanted to build. And God, with a mighty hand, leads them through the Red Sea and he crushes his enemies. He's crushed them already through ten plagues. But now he really crushes them and drowns them. And they are, their dead bodies are washing up on the shore. And Moses sings a song to remember the event, and in the song he says this, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Gives us a picture of what this word means. It means you have led them out of slavery, you've crushed their oppressors and freed them from slavery, right? It's a physical representation of what spiritually is happening at the cross. So... We were chained to sin and to Satan. But when Jesus died on the cross, this chain was broken for us. Now, does that mean we aren't slaves anymore? Not necessarily. We'll get to that because something still goes in that box. But Jesus has taken away our slavery to sin and to Satan. This is what it's talking about in Mark chapter 10 when it says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Ransom language is redemption language. It's the word that's used to say that Jesus gave his self as the payment to buy us at the slave market and free us from our slavery to sin and to Satan. And then finally, God's wrath propitiation. Okay? He was a propitiation by his blood. We talked about how Jesus absorbs God's wrath and that he doesn't just get hit by lightning and get a little jolt. No, the lightning bolt puts its full force into Jesus and Jesus absorbs all of God's wrath so that there is none left for us. Okay? So all that's left for us is love, acceptance, not wrath. Okay, so that's propitiation. Jesus has propitiated God's wrath. Okay, so we've got three big words. Justification, we've got um, redemption, and we've got propitiation. Let's talk about what this means for us. This isn't just theology. It just isn't just big words. For the sake of big words, don't be one of these people if you go to Bible college and take Bible classes who uses big words just to use big words and make other people sound stupid. I was always the kid who was like, Use normal words. No one knows what you're talking about. Okay? That's how I felt. But I wasn't necessarily the smartest kid in the class. So other kids kind of knew what they were doing. So not telling you big words just so you can impress people. Okay? This is not just stuff for pastors. This isn't to make Christianity complicated. This is the terms of the good news. This is the terms of the cross and what's been bought for you um, so that you can know. Okay? So knowing these details keeps you from trying to earn something that you already have. Knowing these details keeps you from avoiding something that's already been taken care of. It's not even coming for you. Knowing these details helps you to not live in fear or anxiety. Knowing these details helps you to not try to earn God's favor when it's already given freely to you. So let's talk about them. Justification. Do you ever feel guilty when you sin? Do you feel crushed by condemning thoughts? condemning accusations that you hear when you know you aren't good enough for God? Do you hear those thoughts that tell you that you could never be accepted by God, that God could never love a wretch like you? Are you ever told in your mind that you should just end it all and just give up because God doesn't love you? Well, we know because of the doctrine of justification that those are lies. That they're not true. That God's not the one putting those thoughts in your mind. That in fact you have a very real enemy named Satan and he is trying to get you to believe something that is not true. Rather, what the Bible tells us is this. You have been justified, therefore there is now no condemnation. No condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Satan has no right to accuse you. It goes on in that chapter to say, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. In other words, if God has said that you're just, it doesn't matter who says what and how loud they say it, they're wrong. You are not condemned. And nothing you can do will condemn you. Do you ever feel like you have to suffer for your sin? Do you ever feel like you've got to have like a period of separation from God 
before you can really come back into right relationship with him? Or do you feel like because of what I've done, I need to do some good stuff before I even think about cracking my Bible or praying again or going to church again, that I have to pay some sort of penalty back to God in order for him to really accept me? I used to think that way. I remember I high school soccer tryouts. Had a bad day, and I would remember things that I'd done the week before. And I'd say, I know why this is happening. God is punishing me. He's letting me play terrible soccer so that I will be punished for my sins. That is a lie. God will never take vengeance on us for past sins or make us pay their penalty. Now, it's true that God disciplines us in love. That he allows things maybe to not go our way all the time as a way to help us on the right path. But he never is punishing us out of vengeance for our sins. So take hold of this truth and live in the freedom that Jesus has bought for you. Let's talk about redemption for a minute, okay? You have had that chain broken between sin and Satan and you. Now, we all wrestle with sin and the desire to serve sin and ourselves and not serve God. And sometimes the temptation can feel unbearable. It can feel irresistible. But we need to know that because Jesus has redeemed us, it doesn't matter how heavy the temptation feels, we should never say, I just can't stop myself. I can't stop myself. It's just too strong. That that, in fact, is never true. That's why the Bible says that whenever there's temptation, God will provide the way of escape. That, in fact, Jesus has broken those chains. They don't exist on those who follow Jesus. You have been freed from slavery to sin and to Satan. And because of that, 1 Corinthians tells us that you are not your own. And your body has been bought with a price. Here's the price. That you are not your own, and so, in fact, you are still a slave to God. You're a slave to God to do his ways, and in slavery to God is true freedom. In slavery to following God. So it doesn't mean, yes, Jesus, save me. I can do whatever I want. That's still slavery. You're slavery to yourself, to serving your needs. That's not what's best for you. But Jesus saved you so you could be a slave to God. That's redemption. That's what we need to live in light of. And finally, propitiation. You ever wrestle with the thought that God's angry at you? That God is really ticked off at what you've done. He's mad at you. You have to know that if you follow Jesus, all God has is love and acceptance. And if you entertain that thought that God's angry with you, you haven't understood the cross. Jesus really did drink up God's wrath. And if you're like, no, there's still a little drop that's still on me because Jesus couldn't really drink the whole thing, that's a terrifying thought. That if God didn't drink all of God's wrath, well, then we're all still under that wrath. So because of propitiation, we can live in the freedom that God drank God's wrath. And because of that, when we sin, we don't have to run away from God. We can run to him, knowing that he has arms wide open just like the prodigal son to love and to accept us and not anger to reject us. So here's my challenge for you guys for this week to come. I encourage you to begin asking yourself when you hear accusations, when you're wrestling with sin, whether or not you are really living in the freedom that the cross buys for you. Are you really living out what Jesus has done for you on the cross? Do you live as if you're justified? Do you live as if you're redeemed? Do you live as if God, Jesus has propitiated God's wrath? And there's one more here. It's reconciliation. You're going to talk about it this coming Wednesday. 
Okay, so do you live as if you've really been reconciled to God? I encourage you to take some time to pray about that, reflect on it, and fight to live in the freedom that's been bought for you on the cross. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. We don't deserve it. I hope that by reflecting and dwelling on it, we are in greater awe of you and that those songs that we're about to sing in the main service would have new life and new meaning to them as we sing about what you've done for us on the cross and uh, the punishment you've paid in our place and the slavery that you have redeemed us from and the guilt and condemnation that you have taken from us and the anger that you have drank for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.